Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Buenos dias. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International, and I'm Kathy Bird. We're live streaming from the studio of Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. And today we take you to Cuba. No passport or visa required because the 35th Miami Film Festival is bringing Cuban stories here and many other stories from around the world. How amazing is that to experience Cuba's cultural landscapes through the eyes of filmmakers? With me in the studio are two sisters born in Miami to Cuban parents. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I have with me Carmen Pelais. She is an award-winning actor and writer, performed her solo play Rum and Coke in L.A., Chicago, Off-Broadway, and most recently shot a live version of it at the Freedom Tower here in Miami Yep, for a fall release. Where will that be released? We're still waiting to see, but we have a few options, so... I'm very excited. I've only seen little clips, so... Oh, yeah, no, I'm excited, too. Keep, we'll us, s- keep us in the loop. We'll see what happens. <laughs> She's also a contributor to NBC Latino, and she's written essays for Marie Claire, Half Poe, New York Times. And she is advising on a relaunch of One Day at a Time on Netflix and Story Lab's Univision, Juguetes Perdidos, Lost Toys. Yep. As she develops her first feature film. And today on our show, we're going to be talking about a first feature film that is quite exceptional. And we'll be having the filmmaker call in, uh, Michelle Memron, in a, about 30 minutes. Ana Sofia Pelais is a food writer covering the spectrum of Latin American cuisine on her blog, Hungry Sofia. Yes. I love your blog. Thank you. Of course, other people love it, too. It's been <laughs> featured in InStyle, Food 52, nominated for Saveur as one of the best regional cooking blogs of 2012. You have a new book. I had my book, The Cuban Table, and then I contributed to a book last year, The Immigrant Cookbook, um, Recipes That Make America Great. I love that. I'm (laughs) I'm excited. And these two are specialists. They're (laughs) specialists in their field of theater and film, writing and cookbooks about Cuba and Latin America. And I think that they're going to bring some great insight to our conversations about three films today. You could call them Cuban love stories, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, because I fell in love each time I watched and felt that I was in Cuba in the way they were presented so beautifully. And I've been to Cuba once. I'm lucky. These two. You've been many times? I've been a couple of times. Yeah, I, I, I lost count. I think I've been six or seven times. Okay, so we'll talk about what it's like to go home because it relates to one of the films. But first, let's listen to the trailer audio from Cuban Food Stories to set the mood. And you'll hear what I mean.
Good morning. That was the audio trailer from Cuban Food Stories that will be aired this coming week during the Miami Film Festival. Cuba's historic relationship with Russia, I'm going to tell you right now, is the backdrop for all three of these films in a way. It's connected. In 1989, the collapse of the Soviet Union catapulted Cuba into an economic crisis that both of my guests are familiar with. There was a time that was called... The special period. The special period. And how special was that? It was terribly, terribly, horribly special and, and Cynic, very di- cynically special. Yeah, it was a very you know difficult <laughs> time. I think it was special if you were able to kind of just bear through it and survive it because it was really just the most depleted. Everything is basically gone. It was basically Pe- how to do something with absolutely nothing. People were eating cats. People were eating condoms on pizza, though it were mozzarella. It was mortifying. The USSR pulled out and... The fact that the Cuban government calls it the special period, it's such a cynical take on it because they were sitting on billions themselves and they could have easily fed everybody. But people were really losing massive amounts of weight. You couldn't drive anywhere, so you had to cycle everywhere. So like you'd lose all those calories. It was horrible. It was a horrible time. People were desperate. I think it was a moment when Cubans realized how resilient they could be because they didn't have gasoline to drive the cars. or The cars were there, but they couldn't use them. There were several abandoned economic projects that were bringing new life and industry and tourism to the island that were abandoned. And one outfall, which was positive in my reading and my experience speaking with other people from Cuba or who've worked with Cuban artists and environmental issues there, was the advent of the sustainable agriculture system that taught, in the worst way, maybe having to learn how to sustain yourself with farming and using organic fertilizer and such because you made it yourself. Mm -hmm. And that whole idea of people having to be forced to be resourceful. And now there's a lot of people that are learning those things, you know, because they can around the world. They want Mm -hmm. that lifestyle. What are you thinking, Carl? I mean, I think it's interesting because I think the tradition of agriculture in Cuba, it's firmly rooted in our island. So I don't think the thing is the government for years wouldn't allow you to have your own farm. They wouldn't allow you to grow your own. You couldn't catch a fish. If they caught you catching a fish without permission, you could get in trouble for that. So that forced the government to allow people to grow food for themselves. No, I I mean, I think it's like with everything with Cuba, this like situation that's imposed on them and then they kind of figure out something and then we talk about how clever they are that they figured out this problem (laughs) that was didn't need to be a problem so I think to me that's what's interesting that there's this like situation of state fail and then we you know we see kind of everybody scramble and they sort something out and we're like oh see that was such a great idea and you're like well you know you could have gone to that point without you know having you know right had this other situation that was very painful. What I found interesting, and I do think it's interesting that there are some techniques and there's some things that were applied and there's always something to learn with Cuba, I think especially with just completely unique to the rest of the world ecosystem and the agriculture and everything that that we can learn from. And I think that's something that Cuba has always had to offer the world. 
you know, since the beginning. Since, since inception, inception, yeah. yeah. And what I found interesting is when I went to Cuba to research my book, I had the sense of like, oh, there's these urban gardens and there's these kind of collectives that you can go and, you know, you're going to be able to kind of see how this agriculture that I've been hearing about, how that was embraced by the community. And what I found was that the way that the food was distributed, there was such a breakdown because it was such a half-started initiative. So, you know, they would give permission for certain people to grow certain amounts of food, but as far as like how much they could sell that or how much they can make that a commercial entity, there was always this like stop and start. I thought, oh, I'm going to go to these farmer's markets and it's going to be, you know, agroponicos is what they talked about. So I would ask everybody about an agroponico and they would just give me this blank look because, yeah, you can know that fruits and vegetables were better, but if you can't get to that market, just getting from point A to point B is such a burden on anybody that they're not necessarily going to go out of their way to get like a really pretty tomato. They're going to just kind (laughs) of like figure out what they need to get as close as possible. So it was interesting to me because it almost became this uncomfortable. It was always like on my list of questions to ask people like, oh, agroponicos and this market and that market. And I would just get, it would became this like, they would look at me like I was crazy, rightfully so, because they would just think like, why would I kind of make this effort to seek this specific kind of food if I'm just trying to get from one day to the next? So it was it was an interesting question because I knew that those projects were happening. I knew that those initiatives existed. But it was this like breakdown between seeing the farm and seeing the table. There was just this like chasm that all this food would go into. So I'm interested to see in food stories because what I did find was that when people did have this direct connection to what they were growing or what they were making, those people did have a sense of what they were doing. And it was, you know, wonderful. And they had this incredible innovation and thought that went into it. And I'm excited to see that. What I found was more difficult is if you were the professor, if you were the doctor or just somebody who just had this like private life that was disconnected from that agricultural life, how much access you had to this. That to me is always kind of what's interesting. Not that it exists, but how much access there is for people so that it's part of the larger food culture. For Cubans. For Cubans. What we can't forget is ultimately it's a totalitarian state. And one of the ways in which they control the population is through food distribution which is why they had the list and why you, you had the stipend of rice. I would stand in line with my family to get the bag of rice and the bag of beans that we'd have to separate because it was full of so many rocks that we'd have to separate all the rocks before we ate it. So it is a, a means of controlling the population. With everything Cuba, you always have to look at it from all sides because there's always a cynical turn with that regime. Which is why I'm so excited to see this documentary. Because right. I feel like for him to explore it, he is someone who grew up there through the special period and to, for him to have this access to things that were maybe kind of inaccessible for a long time, I think is very exciting because it is their story. And I think it's a story that is interesting. I think something I, the filmmaker said that was really interesting is that, you know, even the absence of food is a story. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful way of presenting this one because... God knows there's tons of apps in Cuba. <laughs> well, there's tons of feeling exactly. of plenty in this film. It's mm-hmm. so beautifully shot, and it's so gorgeous that you could just watch it and not listen, but mm-hmm. you want to hear all these stories. It's Asori Soto is the filmmaker, and he did leave Cuba and go study mm-hmm. film, and when he went back, what this film is about is him looking for unknown or hidden Cuban Mm -hmm. stories, he went on quite an expedition across waters, Mm -hmm. you know, in a a Russian tank-type truck, you know, (laughs) he went by boat, on rafts, and what he went to were these villages and remote outposts that show us such amazing plenty 
if you know where to look for it. And right. many of the stories were based on the fishing industry, mm-hmm. you know, small-scale domestic fishing industry, and people were cooking and preparing food at the edge of the water. They went into the mountains. They went to Trinidad, that picture postcard village, and the guy was making this amazing food. Mm-hmm. They introduced us to the Carnival street vendors and how they make do in this particular Carnival. The electricity went out, and you saw them making it mm-hmm. go on again by splicing into other infrastructure. The blue crab fishing... There is a cooking school mentioned, and you see a cooking Mm -hmm. school in a coastal town, but then they talk about how it was closed down and became a cafeteria for government workers. Mm -hmm. So it, like you said, there was a sense of energy and creativity in passing down recipes there, but it got Mm shortchanged. But there's this feeling of hope throughout the film, which I found really interesting, and passing the stories down Mm -hmm. and sharing them and coffee. There was a coffee producer just by hand picking and roasting and grinding and making his coffee. It was just so beautiful. And something he said, he's a poet, mm-hmm. and he's uh, he talks about the coffee plant is like a woman. Mm-hmm. If you... <laughs> He goes they always on get to that on. metaphor. They're always like, and then this is like a woman. Like they, they always, they always find the way. It's a, lot they, of, they, a lot of rows, but they all lead to that. Yeah, they, that, they, that, that, they all figure out a way to pull a poem out of a woman. <laughs> They're That's so romantic. Hilarious. It's very romantic. Yeah, That's yeah. why I said these are like poets. It's, it's very loving. That's another tradition that Cuba has in spades poetry, actually. (laughs) Yes, it is. So it it makes perfect sense, but it's you definitely feel like you're living the inside of a bolero whenever you deal with a Cuban man (laughs) in Cuba, because it's always it's such appreciation Mm -hmm. of of everything female. The way that they compare everything to a woman is kind of wonderful. It is, and one thing he said, uh, his own quote, I guess, that if there's ever the end of coffee. It will be the end of the world. <laughs> Agreed. You know, it's funny because when, when I was in Cuba, at one point we were going through these abandoned French coffee plantations, which I had never seen before. And one thing I didn't realize was that because you have such a coffee culture, there was this one moment after the Haitian Revolution where you had this like influx of coffee growers and then they abandoned them. Coffee culture was so established, but the coffee industry became very disparate. So I think that's really interesting that it still exists because it's almost like everything with Cuba. It's like you have this memory of something that was there that is as potent and as present as anything that's in front of you. Yeah. We make meals of our memories. That's how. That's how we absolutely... That's how we get, that's how our Cubanity survives. That's how we feed our sense of self and our sense of culture, largely through memory. And and it's how it regenerates. Mm-hmm. Right. And many of those who spoke during the film, they speak about the fact that their grandmother inspires their cooking. So there's a very deep connection to family and how food traditions are carried on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I think it's funny because I think that in that way, like we very much have that parallel in Miami. I think everybody kind of goes to their grandparents. It's that kind of going back. It's the same process. We have these two younger generations that something was lost to them and they have to go back to the starting point. That's always the before. And I think that's where a lot of these stories come from. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking to now to have that continuity. I have a friend who said, she's a prominent food historian. And she said, you know, we've lost so much because you lost family cookbooks that would have been passed down. You lost 
access to certain, you know, things that had always been there that just disappeared. For Cuban food, you're constantly recreating that. It's wonderful to feel that somebody is able to do that on the island because it has been a story. It's not that it hasn't been told, but it's been lost to us in a lot of ways because he's going to places that are remote, that are inaccessible. They've been doing what they've been doing for hundreds of years, but our access to them has been so limited. So I think that's what I'm most excited to see in the documentary. One of the stories early on in the film that particularly struck me, and it's back to that loss, and it was a fishing village called Hagua. And the story behind it was just fascinating to me because they were in the process of transforming it into a nuclear city, Mm -hmm. building homes, um, the whole infrastructure for a city, and all the, the youth that were so inclined for that study were trained as nuclear physicists to work in this plant that never happened. Mm -hmm. And this one guy who was trained as a physicist, as a child, he used to sneak on his uncle's boat and hide so he could go fishing with him instead of going to school. (laughs) When his degree as a nuclear Mm -hmm. physicist became moot, he went back to the sea and became a fisherman again. And he talks about how much he loves it, how much it means to him to be part of that, how he brings his food. You see him making ceviche right on the boat. Mm -hmm. And he, at the end, he says, if I could be born again, I would want to be born again as a fisherman. So it felt really good. It was so poetic, Mm -hmm. but it was also, it felt so true, like he really felt that way. Sure, sure. I mean, that that's another thing that I, I find very um, difficult to deal with about the revolution is that they decide where their citizens, what track their citizens are going to take. So unfortunately, too many people don't get to do what they, if you have a gift for medicine, but your parents aren't particularly revolutionary, they don't, they're not part of the party, you don't get to study medicine. It's very selective who gets to do what. And, and all these like half-started projects and People say, oh, Fidel's such a genius. I'm like, the only thing Fidel does really well is fight with the United States. Because if he was a genius, even with everything he took, he he got everything. He really could have made something incredible in Cuba, and he didn't. It's stifling people's natural inclinations. And I'm glad that he's fishing and that he's doing ultimately what he would have wanted to be reborn to do, you know, and that he didn't lose his passion because they made him study that. Mm-hmm. That's That resilience is much more interesting to me. And, and I see that resilience, that's something that not only exists over there, but exists here when people had to come and start over. Right. It's, it's a situation that has brought the fighter out of all of us. Yeah. Well, the director dedicated the film to Cubans wherever in the world they are. Mm-hmm. That's lovely. I know. Yeah. And The next voice you'll hear is the daughter of one of the Cubans who left to seek their fortune in America, the legendary playwright who's the star of Michelle Memron's first film. It's a documentary titled The Rest I Make Up. And now we'll let you listen to a bit of the film, and then Michelle will be calling in. Am I the subject of your film? Yes. Am I so fascinating that you feel I don't need script, I need rehearsal? By myself, I will be so interesting. (laughs) 
will say, who is that? Irene, as she prefers to be called, was born in Cuba, wrote over 40 plays, won nine OBs, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. No one ever knows who she is. She's the one who's been out there cutting the brush, paving the trails. Every play is different. Each play is demonstrating a different muscle. I have so much style that you don't even know. You think it's mistakes. Try not to think too much about what makes good writing, but just let it come out. There's nobody who's had the influence in American playwriting as a teacher. I often think of it as the experience of Alice when she goes through the whole The neighborhood of artists. You're the real deal. Everybody always fell in love with her. I always called her Doña Juana. To me, writing plays is not a way of earning a living, but it is a way of earning a life. Being an artist, you have to abandon any notion of things making sense. It was loss of memory implied that I don't remember anything or that there is a loss. The whole purpose of her classes was to teach them not to get stuck. I haven't been writing for how long? For years and years. <laughs> Irene, it's Michelle. Follow me, kid. Writing, Michelle calls talking to a camera, writing. Is this part of your story? I don't hide anything. I am what I am. I am a playwright. It's my life. It's my work. You changed a lot of people's lives. Oh, yes? You changed my life. Does this movie go into the future, or is it only the past? These are memories like dreams. It's true. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International, and today we're talking about how Cuba is inspiring some of the new films that will screen this week during the 35th Miami Film Festival. Miami-based writer and filmmaker Carmen Pelez is here in the studio to talk about the next documentary with the documentarian, the filmmaker herself, who will be calling in in a few minutes. This film introduced me for the first time to the Cuban-American playwright, Maria Irene Fornes. Michelle Memran, I'll introduce her as she's preparing to call in, is a journalist, illustrator, and filmmaker, studied journalism at Northwestern University and film at New York University. For nearly 20 years, she has worked as a reporter and researcher in New York City, writing for numerous publications. The Rest I Make Up, her first feature film, had its world premiere this February at the Museum of Modern Arts Documentary Fortnite Festival. We'll start with just talking, Carmen, how you discovered this film. I discovered it because my editor at uh, NBC Latino said, you know this playwright, right? Do you want to write about this documentary? And as soon as I saw that it was made in a Fortnite, I was like, yes, absolutely. I want it. And I want the Mich- I want the assignment. Michelle's on the air. Oh, perfect. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, everyone. Hi. 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 We are thrilled that you've called in. Carmen was just introducing how she found out about your film, and mm-hmm. you both have different experiences knowing Yiren Fonas. How? What? What about you, Carmen? How did you first learn about her work? Well, studying acting in New York and, and as a playwright, 
Centro Cultural Cubano did a, a day for her, dedicated to her, and she was there. I didn't study playwriting, but a lot of my friends did. And a lot of them, oh, you have to get in one of Fornes' classes, you've got to get with it. I was never able to, but I got to meet her that day. And I asked her, what's the one piece of advice you would give a playwright? And she she was, stood very close to me. And she said, make make sure that the characters must tell each other only what they must tell each other. Have them say what, only what they have to say. And it uh, with that, it's everything, right, Michelle? Like, it's yeah, because, totally. it, you know, we don't often say everything we're thinking. We only say what we have to say. And, and it, it brought immediacy. It brought danger. It brought perspective to my work. It's just mm-hmm. that one piece of advice to me was That's was great. everything. So even though I didn't get to have a class with her, or like so many of my friends had, through Michelle's documentary, which is absolutely wonderful, I, I felt that I got an experience that I had always regretted missing out on. And Michelle gave that, that to us in, in her wonderful in her wonderful documentary. And Michelle, how did you first meet Yudan? Well, I met Irene, I was a journalist, I used to cover theater, and um, I was writing a piece on how playwrights retaliated against critics, and interviewing lots of playwrights about their experience with critics. You know, I had first read a play of hers in college, and then it was called The Conduct of Life, and it soon became my favorite play, and she became my favorite playwright. And so she was the last person I interviewed for this article on playwrights and critics that was back in... 99, 2000, and we became friends. We just really hit it off. It was like a, you know, six-hour lunch. She really could care less about critics, and it was <laughs> hilarious. That was the beginning of our friendship. What made you want to create a film with her? Uh, what sparked that? That came a little later. I mean, as our friendship progressed, whenever I was in the West Village, I would just call her up, and we'd go have lunch, or we'd go to flea markets, and we'd go for store shopping. And over time, she was talking about how she wasn't writing anymore, and she wasn't being called to teach. And I I thought that it was a little strange that she had all this time, because she'd been so industrious and had traveled the world teaching playwriting and getting, you know, her plays produced. And so I called her agent, and I asked, I said, so what's, what's going on with Irene? And, like, she doesn't seem to be working. And her agent told me, Morgan Jeunesse, who was her agent at the time, said, you know, I think she might be having the beginnings of memory loss or dementia. And I had sort of picked up on that, that that might be the case. And so we started doing writing exercises together. I go, you know, I would go over, drop off food, and we would do writing exercises. But that wasn't really, it was hard. It was, that was a lot hard. I'm not Irene, so I can't do a writing workshop like (laughs) she can do. So that was a sort of folly. And then one day we asked, by accident, I had a, I brought an old Hi8 camera that I had maybe used it once, and we were at Brighton Beach, and the way she responded to the camera, it, it, it was like a light, a light bulb went off immediately that this is a way to continue the creative process and something we could collaborate on together. And so I called her agent and I said, what do you think of this? And she was like, go for it. And so that's how it started. It started as a way to continue the creative process. That's so cool. And I remember one of the quotes when you ask her, are you uncomfortable in front of the camera? And she had this beautiful answer for you about how much she loved it. She called the camera my beloved. That was that moment where I was like, okay, this is this is it. <laughs> you know, this is the answer to something. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it was the answer, but it was the next step. 
Well, she did say, I'll give it everything I've got. I'll give you right, everything right. I've got. And I <laughs> loved how, as we watch your relationship with her and the memories that you share together and create together, how you were able to, to me, every time I saw you with her, she may be forgetting where she was sometimes or lose weeks or days, but every time she saw you, it brought her back. Mm-hmm. Everyone always says, I mean, especially now when I go visit, oh, does she remember you? Does she know you? And with Irene and I, it was never about that. It was just like we had this very deep connection. For a long time, she knew exactly who I was and, you know, that my name was Michelle and that what we were doing. And some days she didn't know. You know, some days she was like, what are we doing again? Oh, we're doing this film, right. And it was never about that kind of recognition. It was never about like, oh, Irene knows who I am and she loves you. You know, like we, we kind of saw beyond that. But she, yeah, she knew when I'd say, it's Michelle, she would buzz me up. She would say, are we working today? And that was the big glue. It was like we were working together. We were collaborators. Let's talk about her history as a theater person. What, yeah. what was she known for? I mean, I was reading that she didn't study theater. She was an artist. She's actually known for having a varied style, which is not, it's, I mean, each of her plays is very, very different. But she, yeah, she did, she had very little education. As far as I know, she went up through sixth grade in Cuba, or what, you know, the equivalent of what would be sixth grade in Cuba. And then she came to the U.S. and she was working in textiles and started doing some painting with Hans Hoffman. She studied in Provincetown. And so she really started off as a painter. And then the 50s and 60s, sort of the movement of off-off-Broadway came into place. She was in a relationship with Susan Sontag. In 1959, they, they began having this relationship. And they were immediately put into the scene of... The Village Voice. It was like everything was happening, the early happenings that were going on, you know, artists, plays being put on in storefronts. And Irene was really at the forefront of that. She was one of the pioneers of that and started writing just to show Susan how easy it was to write a novel. She decided she was going to take a cookbook and and write one line from each. I don't know exactly how it panned out, but that's, that's how she started writing plays. So it was pretty remarkable. She just started writing in that way, and each play had a different starting place. She was known as in the beginning as a very whimsical, very, like, her plays had a lot of, they dealt with social issues, but they were very light, had a light touch, and were very humorous, and, and a lot of music in them. And then they became darker as the decades became darker. You know, as, as she evolved as a playwright, she she really took on, bigger issues in her plays. Carmen, what did you see in the film that you thought Michelle captured about Irene's practice that was unique? The purity of it. I thought what she really captured brilliantly was how direct Irene was with whatever she was experiencing at the moment. There's no space, you know, a lot of us, I think, create a space between what we're experiencing judging it as we're doing it or we go into something and think we have an expectation and we're going to see if, you know, it, it, but to me it's the, in the moment, mm-hmm. the essence of Irene and how she captured, how she truly lived every single moment in the moment 
was stunning. And then as you see her fighting with losing her memory, you know, dealing with this memory loss, you realize to me, the memory loss was devastating because, well, A, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, so I really related to that, that process, but you don't want this woman to stop creating. But what was amazing is that when she started creating, her creation evolved. It didn't get to the page, but she was still creating. And so you see that her approach to life was her salvation as the light of her memory starting to go out. And that I thought was incredibly impressive on Michelle's part that she captured that. And she was able to capture her artistry and the essence, the the muscularity and the life of her artistry without attaching anything to it, just very purely. So she purely captured Irene's purity. And by seeing that, when you read her plays or when you see one of her plays, you understand how that play came from Irene. Like when I saw Conduct of Life, I didn't stop thinking about that play for three weeks after. Like every day I would wake up thinking about that play. And Fifu and her friends, I mean, it's just, she's such a stunning playwright. She captures what so many of us wish we we could capture, which is poetically telling the truth without being precious about it. When Michelle and I spoke about it before, and it's very Cuban, we're used to dealing with fairly brutal situations very gracefully and poetically and artistically. And I read a Stan Cubana. She's just so Cuban. <laughs> she reminded me of my great aunt. She reminded me of so many Cuban artists that are true artists that I know. It was just wonderful. And, and to Michelle's credit, again, I don't think that's an easy thing to do. When I found out this is her first doc, I was like, what? Like, are you serious? <laughs> because you see Michelle growing through it as well. And you see Michelle becoming an artist. So it's just this wonderful piece about these two women that have something really wonderful to offer each other, but everybody around them is going to benefit from it as well. But you don't think any of that. You're just like, oh my God, this is just, I want to be on this. I want to be here right now. It makes you want to be present. And that's such a gift. That is perfect. Something that really struck me in the film, Michelle and I were talking about last night. I remembering the camera scanning over these notes from her studio type things handwritten words and one that just stood out to me and I don't know Michelle might have lingered there and wanted me to see it but it was love is paying deep attention and I asked Michelle what that meant Michelle (laughs) well we had I mean we had a (laughs) over the course of the 15 years that we've been making this documentary we we had um you know story cards and like quotes of Irene and themes and various things. And that was one of the themes that we had, you know, pinned up on the storyboard wall. And the idea of that is the essence of Irene is paying deep attention to every detail. Um, as you know, I mean, the, the Irene that I know, and I know that different people have different experiences with her. And this was, you know, one story of spending time with Irene, but that quality. And I think carbon, really said it beautifully, like, there's a line that I mean says, it's like, not in the film, but she says, you know, humanity is much more moving when it's not crying over itself. <laughs> and um, the, and I think that is very, felt very Cuban to me. Like I mean, she would take a situation in Cuba, and you would think it would be a sad moment, and then she flips it. 
because she's brought back into the present moment. And in the present moment, everything is okay. You know, it's like there's no problem in the present moment. You know, there's no Alzheimer's in the present moment. You're just like who you are. So that was what we really tried to capture when we were doing the film. Yes, and I know that you took Irene to Cuba for one of those present moments. Mm-hmm. And she talks about what it meant to go home. Let's listen to how she felt about it. Great. In Cuba, I feel like I have returned to a long lost great love. This is my soil. This is my spirit. If I have any kind of spirit that, that in the United States I have been celebrated is too big a deal, but I have been taken seriously as a playwright. It is, I am very grateful to the United States, but it is because I've been Cuban. In some ways I have sold things from my father, from my mother, each one very independent. Michelle, what did you notice about Irene when you took her to Havana? Oh, it was an incredible moment of transformation into what I imagined she was like when she was living in Cuba before she left when she was 15. I mean, everything opened up. Like, you know, her her spirit just completely blossomed. And, and she just basically was just, it's the feeling of the homecoming. It's like, oh, this is who I am. This is my spirit. She says it dancing in the streets. We had people following us. She, I mean, she's, she's dancing streets. She's dancing on beaches. We're, like, filming on rooftops. We're recreating scenes from one of the plays. Her brother's there. Her whole family welcomed us in this incredible way. Like, they didn't have much, and they were, like, saved for a week to get a pork chop for us. You know, like, to have a big dinner the, la- the last night we were there. I mean, it was like she... I'd never seen that side of her in New York. It was a very different quality of of joy, basically. Yeah. That I saw. I related to that as well. There's nothing like it really is stunning like the minute they get to Cuba. It's you know, I, I think all Cubans to some extent feel that way, whether they were born there or not. You mm-hmm. just recognize you know, I have a line in my play about the roots come up from the ground and grab my feet. The the minute you're you're really home, you're home and you feel it. I, I have the advantage of that. I feel that in Miami and Havana, you know, but it's transformative once you're there. Well, I think it's interesting that you said that, you know, that you recognize because I don't think it's just that you recognize something that's familiar to you, but it's to be recognized. Yes, that is this that that I think is that openness that you feel as soon as as a Cuban, whether or not you've left Cuba or you're a Cuban American who hasn't been there going back for the first time. It's that feeling of seeing and being seen without the filter, without the explanation, without that. Yeah, there's no explanation. You know, in Cuba, oh, no, I'm I'm Cuban. Like, it's just an understood thing. You're with your pack. You're with your tribe. So there's the immediacy again. Mm -hmm. it, It goes back to the immediacy. Seeing well, seeing Irene in Cuba is just wonderful. Well, it's so interesting that you guys talk about being seen because we go from New York where Irene is feeling profoundly unseen 
to going to Cuba, where it is totally true. She's completely, you know, seen and valued, despite, you know, the issues going on with memory loss. Like, it's all an aside. It's not even an issue. You know, yeah. her family's like, welcome home, you know, <laughs> and, and what are we going to do next? And what are we going to eat? And what are we going to do? And what, are, you know, what beaches are we going to go to? You know, like, what music are we going to hear? Um, it's not all, I mean, I know that it's a, it's a very complex place and there are a lot of contradictions there i mean we were just with her family so it was a very different experience uh, it was a very like that's why it was so joyful in, in a lot of ways and and i think they knew that that was the last time they were going to see her and i think that added another layer onto it too but you know michelle that what you say like well, we were with her family and that it is complex that's what's amazing about cubans i think is that what we've been able to survive is our our families are what in some some cases tragically not but our sense of family and our sense of self when we're together when we're uni- when we're united that's something mm-hmm. that no regime can touch and the, the joy mm-hmm. and the connection that we feel when we're with each other is so intense and wonderful and pure and real that it does yeah. overcome a lot of these complications and unfortunate situations it's easier to overcome them when we're together. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it definitely seemed that way when we were there. Yeah, this is beautiful. And related to that, Michelle, how did the filmmaking experience and that experience of Cuban culture affect you? That trip was uh, was the highlight of my life. I mean, that was that was it. It, it basically. I mean, it, it was a it was a very big issue in the film of like how like what does Cuba mean? You know, like how are we going to incorporate Cuba into the film? Because we were following Irene's memories. I mean, that that was the moment where I really felt like an artist when we were there. I felt like we were creating something artistic together. You know, it felt like it, like there was a shift in me from being, oh, we're just doing this fun thing, to you know, <laughs> we're just filming and you know we don't. You, we don't care if the, the camera's on the floor, or the mic's on her back, to, oh, we're making this film and we're like, we're supposed to be here. So it did change my relationship. And it definitely changed my relationship to Irene, but it also changed my relationship to myself in terms of like, what were we doing there? I also think it officially changed your relationship to all Cubans, Michelle, because I'm claiming you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was such, it was I'll such take a it. Thought, it was such a thoughtful thing to do. It was to, such a th- to be cued into Irene's feelings and knowing when she would mention it, you sensed that this is something we need to do, and you did it. But what I really loved about it, and again, this is it's not easy to do as an artist. Michelle gave herself over to the experience and didn't impose her views on Irene in Cuba. She went with it. And that's why I say she's an honorary Cuban now, because she didn't, you know, a lot of people impose their ideas about Cuba onto Cubans. We deal with it all the time, my sister and I, Mm -hmm. throughout our careers. And you see Michelle just absolutely becoming this, you, you see the partnership more vividly than you do in anywhere else during the film. And yet it's, again, so direct and so complete and that's rare. To see somebody give themselves over like that is, is so rare and tender and lovely. That That's another aspect of it that made the film so special. Well, Michelle, thank you so thank you. much for introducing your film to us. 
And cool. Thank you for having me. Look Thank forward you, to meeting you this weekend at the screening. Yeah, definitely. I'm very excited. Yeah, we leave for Miami on Friday. Yay. Super. <laughs> yay. Well, yeah. I want to share one more film that I think brings one more true Cuban story to the table here. And it's a political satire. It's a narrative film, but it's based on true story of resiliency in Cuba. And I think it's very interesting. It takes us back to the very moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Cuba y la revolución cubana seguirían luchando y seguirían resistiendo. Eche que tampoco salió este mes. No hay papel ni para la revista de la facultad. La clase es lo único que me queda. Vendrán tiempos mejores. Marianita, mi amor, mira, y de todo eso que tú estás viendo ahí no puedes decir nada. Es como Radio Martín. Sergio, ¿estás there? I know you're going through a little bit of a rough time right now. Lo único que hay es hielo. We're going to get through this. Don't worry. ¿Quién habla ahí? ¡Mami! In the orbital station. Peter, Sergey is in trouble, and I think we can help him. You must have good connections. NASA, maybe? I mean, doesn't everybody? NASA comes to the rescue of the last Soviet cosmonaut abandoned in space. Está bajo investigación. Tú estás en algo con los americanos y los rusos. Pasiva. Compañero. Ernesto and Maria Daranas wrote the script, and Ernesto directed this film that is the story of an unusual friendship between a Cuban philosophy professor and a Russian cosmonaut who finds himself trapped in the Mir space station at the fall of the Soviet Union. And he didn't know what was going on. He found a ham radio operator who happened to be a professor who spoke Russian. And it's just this wonderful story. The director's notes explain that the things that happen in the film happen to him. And he narrates it in a way that makes it perfectly delightful and funny and sad all at the same time. And I think that it's a, a good thought right now for me, the takeaway from the film would be the idea that even though there was nothing glamorous about their lives, they're joyful and happy and they're together. And they're doing things like distilling rum in their houses. They're building rafts for people to escape on boats at night. They're finding ways to not just survive, but to live and love each other and be a community. I personally can't wait to see this film because mm -hmm. I think it captures the... Cuba's so isolated. I always say it's, it's just another planet. 
And I think it captures a particular moment in time where technology was so limited and we, there really was an iron. We really didn't know what was happening in Cuba and Cuba didn't really know what was happening here. I'm looking forward to seeing how narratively he captures the essence of what that time was, which was so isolating and, and really the only joy you could take out of your day is that which you created. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they did with this. No, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, you don't want to romanticize any kind of lack of access. Right. Um, because you know the, to- the human toll it takes. But even I find myself very nostalgic for when I think back to my childhood, the quiet of it, what that allows. And I think to kind of explore that in a non, you know, not in a way that doesn't bring that all of that other baggage in it, but just kind of look at it as this is the situation that people were living in. How did they go deeper because of that? I think I'm excited to see that. And what's interesting, you saying that, both of you, is that the narrator of the film is the daughter as an adult, looking back on the happiest days of her life. Wow, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, so, I can't wait. I can't wait to see this film. So about resilience, sense of humor, creativity, and family, that's Cuba in film that you'll be seeing at the Miami Film Festival this coming week. This is Fresh Art International, streaming live on Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida. I'm Kathy Bird. Thank you for joining us today for our conversation about how Cuba inspires new films that are coming here this week. I'm honored that these sisters, Carmen Palais and Ana Sofia Palais, joined me in the studio. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you for having us. It was really wonderful for you to be here and for Michelle to call in. Please tell us how we're doing on Fresh Art International. Rate and review our Fresh Art International radio show and podcast on iTunes or anywhere you go to listen. We bring you conversations about creativity with artists, curators, filmmakers, and designers from around the world every Wednesday morning on Jolt Radio from 10 to 11 a.m. Our program is made possible with listeners like you. Until May 5th, the Knight Foundation will double all your donations to us because we are a Knight Challenge grant awardee. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to make your contribution. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.